So hi, hi, Alexei. Um, what was your first computer? Hi, Adam. Uh, my first computer was probably a Pentium 2 PC that my dad bought for me. I don't re really remember the specs. I remember it had like 200 megahertz and uh, I don't know how, how much memory and it barely ran Doom 2. So that was probably my first one. Okay, and why you got it? Because of Doom? Uh, well, my, my dad was a programmer at the time and he switched computers. Uh, so he got a better one and I got this one and mm -hmm. basically I used it to play Doom for the most part. Okay, and uh, what uh, what what kind of programmer was your dad? Was which programming languages uh, was he involved back then? Uh, he was involved in C++ mostly. Okay, cool. And uh, you were back to programming immediately, or just uh, you know uh, played a lot with the computer? I played a lot, and I didn't really care about programming for the most part until I was about sixteen. So I knew I had a, like I understood that how it worked because my parents were in in it and. Um, I just didn't really have any interest. But about when I was 16 years old, I uh, saw this movie called Social Network, and it was about you know the invention of Facebook. Yeah. And I was uh, I know that that wasn't what the movie was about, but I was really inspired by like the technical aspects of it and how you know one person can build something like this. And I was very motivated, and I kind of just started learning programming up to that. Hey, cool. With, with, with which programming language you started? Well, like the, even before that, I, I learned some programming in school. It was um, Quick Basic at first, or QBasic. That's like the very first language that I, I learned. Uh, the language I had more or less some experience, I guess, it was Pascal and Delphi. Mm -hmm. and, and then uh, eventually I switched to C Sharp around. 2012, and since then I was using it for the biggest part okay. of my career. And when you started with QBasic, when was it, roughly? Oh, it might have been when I was like 10 years old or something, so but quite which, early. Which year was it, so like no under time? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, let me let me calculate this, so, so like 2005 or six. Okay, cool. Like so uh, they started with QBasic, what you wrote with QBasic? Oh, you had to do this because of school, right? Yeah, yeah, that was just basic calculator stuff. Yeah. You enjoyed that? Um, it was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I loved it, but it was pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then you started with Pascal, you said, right? So this was QBasic yeah. was first, and then uh, Tubo Pascal. And why mm -hmm. you switched to Tubo Pascal? What do you wanted to? Achieve? Yeah, it was also because of school. Um, the 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 program was built in such a way that QBasic was kind of like an introductory language. Oh, okay. And then and then you got thrown into Turbo Pascal, and this is like where the real stuff supposed to begin. Okay. So um. So your first programming language by choice was C Sharp, right? Yeah, basically, I knew at some point I wanted to become a programmer. I just didn't know which language should I pick. Mm -hmm. um, and then somebody I knew said, why don't you just pick C Sharp? And there was no reason, really. So I just thought, well, I could try it. And I kind of tried it and liked it and stuck with it. OK, because social network, I think you should start with PHP. I think yeah. It had to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you enjoyed that, C Sharp? Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I still like it even to this day. Okay, and how you started? So you downloaded Visual Studio or, or how, how to start with C Sharp. I'm a Java developer, and uh, mm -hmm. at the beginning, I didn't like C Sharp and .NET at all. And the reason being, I don't know whether you know the history is like, uh, yeah. so I started with Java, you know, and uh, Sun uh, sued Microsoft, and then Microsoft started with the knock knockoff called mm -hmm. uh, .NET, and I was the Java developer, so I get what's and why someone should do this. And then the first C Sharp was a little bit strange, but now C Sharp is really nice, and Microsoft is a completely different company. So now I'm... Uh, uh, completely changed my mind uh, around C Sharp and, and Microsoft. I still have no time to learn real C Sharp, but I'm 
I do all my work with Java. Right. How was the process? So you, so you bought Visual Studio or, or how you started or what? Yeah, back when I started, it already was a lot better than what you described. So um, there was a free version of Visual Studio that mm -hmm. was called Express. It, mm -hmm. it was before they rebranded it to Community and made it better. And so you could download it and it installed all the dependencies you needed for like C-sharp development. Mm -hmm. And basically you could use that. Nowadays, it's uh, a lot better and uh, the net is you know, modular, so you can um, install it separately from Visual Studio and use any IDE like Visual Studio Code, or there's a JetBrains IDE called Writer for it, and also use it on any operating system as well. And I guess to start, you can you can just go to, I think it's dot, .net, so like okay. a website.net, and then it just guides you through like the very first steps with any IDE you want, or even without IDE if you want okay. to as well. There's .NET and .NET Core. So what you should start with was .NET Core? Uh, yeah, .NET Core. .NET um, is it's very confusing, I know, for especially for beginners, but basically .NET is going away. Mm -hmm. But then .NET Core is getting rebranded back to .NET in, um, I think, October this year. Okay. And basically the way it worked out is .NET used to exist, but then they made .NET Core in parallel to that, and it was supposed to be like a lightweight mm -hmm. cross-platform alternative. But it's evolved into being essentially feature on feature parity with, with the original .NET, but it was also cross-platform. So there was no reason to keep the original .NET anymore. And so they kind of stopped working on .NET, but then eventually they realized if they only have .NET Core, why not just call it .NET as well? Okay. And so, and so starting from this year, it's going to be just .NET. So um, in Java, we have uh, almost a similar, a confusing you know, story. We have the Java, that was the first one. And then yeah. there was an open source variant called OpenJDK. And mm -hmm. then it was slower and not as good as the Java, but now it is a feature compared with the real Java from Oracle. And now you can have an OpenJDK, which is as good as the real Java. And usually you will ju you just use Java, you know, to get some support, commercial support. But you can totally go with the open source version, which some people call Java or OpenJDK is like, you know, the open source. And to make it even more confusing, there is an OpenJDK, you know, flavors for... Uh, several companies from several you can buy from red hat ibm mm. azure systems oracle so this is not like you know that is special here uh, okay so yeah. your history is pretty short so 2012 you started with c sharp and uh yeah. and then what you built what was your first program with c sharp actually i think i did some pet projects and one of the one of like the first projects that built was kind of like a chatbot so you okay. could talk to it and the way it worked is that it had some database of like keywords and mm -hmm. then it when it matched like those keywords based off of how much it matched, it would choose an answer, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how it worked. I think that was my first project in C Sharp. Mm -hmm. um, and the database yeah, was written by you? Is like a flat <laughs> file, or was it uh, like a really .NET? It database? was actually, you can say it was real. It was MS Access. It was the only thing I knew because I worked mm -hmm. in the Delphi uh, mm -hmm. with that. Uh, and I communicated it over ADO.NET, I think it's called, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty much like all, almost raw SQL layer over okay. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so no ORMs or stuff. Um, yeah, that was my first experience, I guess. And MS Access is still around? I have no idea. I think so. I mean, it has okay. a very like specific market, I think. Okay. So. And in .NET Core, is this like an open source database? No, this .NET Core is just .NET Core. There is no no data yeah. there, right? Uh, yeah, .NET Core and so on is just the base class library, essentially. Okay. But there is also, and um, well, the database layers are kind of separate, but there is also the ORM, for example, that uh, essentially ships in the same release cycle called Entity Framework Core. Okay. Uh, well, it's basically an ORM which you can use with almost any relational um, database. There mm -hmm. are plugins for many of them. Uh, but then, of course, you can use any database, for example, Postgres, which is open source. Okay. Or 
or even SQL Server, which nowadays kind of free and runs on Linux as well. So. Yeah, they, actually, in one project, we are running uh, Microsoft SQL Server on Linux. So, um, yeah, and, and access from Java, but uh, still interesting. And uh, what's about Enhibernet? Is still around? So it was Beacon.net, what I know. Uh, is Entity yeah. Framework more popular than Enhibernet, or? Yeah, it pretty much replaced it. Um, so right now it's either Entity Framework Core, which is like majority of the projects that work with database are going to use this, or Dapper, which is a, 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 not an ORM at all. It's kind of like um, a way for you to build raw SQL queries, but okay. in a like safe way. So it like sanitizes them for you, but it also like maps them to objects when you query something. But essentially, you're still building the queries manually while okay. Entity Framework is an ORM. So majority of the projects either use one or the other. There are also some other ORMs and frameworks, but they're very like scarce and few in, in between. Okay, cool. So I actually didn't want to talk about it, but it's uh, for us Java developers still interesting. So you are the expert. How to start with .NET? <laughs> so uh, we we should start with the page .NET dot .NET, right? Not dot dot .NET dot 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 the real dot and .NET, which is actually yeah. cool. Um, I don't know whether you are aware. There was uh, before .NET, there was a page uh, Java.NET. And yeah. they start and Microsoft started .NET, and this, of course, we didn't like Java developers at all. So like, why they are doing this? this? Is our page? You know, this was a <laughs> cool hack, and now and now this Java.NET was actually killed by Oracle. So there is no more Java.NET. There is something else, and but .NET is actually uh, even cooler. So dot, dot, you should do the note dot .Java would be even better. You know, <laughs> then the history repeats. Okay, yeah. so. Uh, you should start with a .NET, and they will download all the .NET Core dependencies, whatever you need to my machine, which is cross-platform. Yep. So it could also yep. work on Apple, Mac. Yeah, sure. Cool. And then you can use Visual Studio Code and mm -hmm. Visual Studio Code uh, to, as an editor, which I use yep. for Java, fine enough. So today morning, I just wrote some code with uh, Visual Studio Code, which is great, just for experimentation. And with Java, we have IntelliJ. And you said IntelliJ. Writer. Yeah, yeah. It's just called JetBrains Writer. JetBrains Writer. The mm -hmm. part. I know there was ReSharper before. Is it mm -hmm. gone or is it still around? It's still around. Uh, it's um, well, ReSharper was an extension, or it still is an extension for Visual Studio. But the thing is, uh, it is kind of like Visual Studio kind of wants to get rid of ReSharper, so they don't own it, but they want to replace every feature in it with inside of Visual Studio, like built okay. in. Okay. And um, ReSharper is built by JetBrains. Uh, yeah. people, so they kind of just don't want to depend on Visual Studio. Mm -hmm. So all of their effort is now in Rider, which incorporates all the features of ReSharper okay. anyway. So okay. you you can use Visual Studio in ReSharper, but it's always better to just use Rider instead, okay. if you can. And what's the state of the union in .NET? So it's like, uh, the developers still use Visual Studio, or they prefer Visual Studio Code? Well, it's definitely like, back in when I started, almost everybody used Visual Studio. Sure. Nowadays, nowadays, I think, it's, I don't really know the statistics, but it feels like from talking to people that a lot more are using Rider. I would say maybe, maybe like from people I know, about 40, 50%, so a big okay. question. Uh, but fewer people use, use Visual Studio Code, but I still know some people that do, mostly because it's like more lightweight. It's less of an IDE, more of like a, okay. a very uh, user-friendly text editor, I would okay. say. But still people use it. Uh, That's yeah. interesting, because uh, Visual Studio Code for Java is actually pretty decent, and Microsoft spends yeah. a lot of time improving that. This is, I would say, an ID, so I can refactor. You know, I have unit test support. It is, uh, yeah, yeah. I would say, eighty percent of uh, of a normal Java ID. So it's pretty decent, actually. Yeah, with C Sharp you can do all those th things too. But I'm, maybe it's because I'm comparing to like Rider and ReSharper, and there are so many features that are like kind of advanced. Like you can extract methods into other yeah. classes okay. like in one mm -hmm. click, and that you can really do that in Visual Studio Code. Okay, th then it's very similar situation. 
Okay, so mm -hmm. those were first pet project. What was your next pet project? Um, wow, it's uh, it's it's hard to remember my next pet pet project because it was a while. I went into I started like working freelance um cool. with uh, C Sharp. Mm -hmm. So I built some like ad hoc projects for people for very little money, and for the most part, it was just to gain experience and try new things. Um, very popular like uh, jobs, I guess, that people wanted me to do was build some kind of clients to some APIs, usually it's like social networks like Twitter or okay. Instagram. And uh, for example, there was one where, where you kind of like analyze the activity um, on Twitter related to one account and see like who comments, like who posts replies the most, who shares the most. And based off of that, you kind of like you could reward that person or something like this. The, your clients wanted to have C-Sharp or was it your choice? They hired you to solve the problem? Or they hired you to solve the problem with C Sharp. Usually, they just hired me to share, uh, to solve the problem. Okay. Um, sometimes some of the projects were libraries where they specifically wanted me to build them in C Sharp, uh, but usually it doesn't matter. And where was it in in US or? Uh, yeah, it was just on websites. Uh, so I started off with uh, it was called freelancer.com, so very like obvious place to start. But I didn't like it, and I eventually moved to a website called elance.com, which is now doesn't work anymore. They got bought by another company called Upwork, and Upwork is where I ended up working at the end on okay. freelance. Uh, but a lot of like clients that I've had, uh, you know, m many jobs with are the clients that I found there. But then we kind of worked separately because yeah. we already knew each other. Yeah. And in which country was it? Uh, well, I live and worked in Ukraine, but the my clients were from all over the world. Okay, cool. And the website itself, I think, is uh, also somewhere in the US or something. Okay, cool. Okay, so so you started as a freelancer immediately? Yeah. And, and yeah. have you studied computer science or something? Uh, when I started, I didn't actually study it before. Uh, so it's funny because I got my bachelor's in electronics, which is oh. something not very related to computer science. But then I got my master's in computer science. But I started freelancing four years before I started my yeah. master's. So it was like, uh, to, in retrospect, I didn't know much at all back then. So it was it's kind of surprising that people actually paid me to do anything. Mm -hmm. But the things that I built, that did work. So I guess that's the only thing that matters. Um, but yeah. And you enjoyed that? So building stuff? Yeah, it was very, very interesting and very enjoyable. Like I loved the fact that I could build something that others wanted and it solved their problem and they were their lives were better because of that. Yeah, cool. So then you started study. You still enjoyed, you know, the study as or, or the the master of computer science study, or was it? Yeah, but were, were you disappointed a bit that it's, it's too dry and too theoretical? Yeah, I was disappointed, and in some aspects, I was kind of I already had some experience after yeah. four years of freelancing, so. Many of the things weren't that new. Like it's nice to being able to categorize and like structureize your thinking, but I felt quite bored for the most part. So and also, yeah, because a lot of the things we've learned were very theoretical, like you said. And at that point, I was it was hard for me to figure out how to apply all that. Uh, but it's funny because sometime later, I've I've actually used something that I didn't think was necessary back then, and uh, it was the uh, the language theory, like the formal language theory, when you, where you use for parsing. Mm -hmm like languages, like program languages or stuff mm -hmm. like JSON stuff. So I didn't think I would need this, but then sometime down the line, a few years later, I was like, hey, that actually came in useful. Yeah, um, I had ex exactly the same experience as you. So I also you know, started freelancing uh, uh, before, I was, uh, before I actually started. 
And uh, then yeah. I started to study, and I saw, you know, the the the, the, the professors. Hey, the guy had no idea what he's talking about, and <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like what. And I still had to learn, you know, the stuff. Also, it was no more that relevant. And uh, afterwards, now I would really appreciate to study again and really just for fun, you know, to learn more about yeah. compilers and all the stuff which was uh, bored yeah. back then. So <laughs> exactly the same experience. I think it's normal that uh, then uh, after gaining some, you know. Uh, experience Practical from real world, knowledge. it is uh, nice to rethink your theory and you can reapply it even better. So this is what, what usually yeah. happens. Yeah. I and, agree, yeah. So, and then you stop being freelancer. Why? Um, I think it's uh, mostly because I, I didn't really like the, the, um, uh, this aspect of just you know, having to find clients all the time. Like My mm -hmm. daily workflow was basically I was working on one monitor and then I had another monitor with like the list of an RSS feed actually of jobs open. Mm -hmm. So when I like the you know, open jobs that you can bid on, and so I, I would kind of just monitor it all the time. Even if I was already working on a project, I had to make sure that another one was lined up. And I mean, it wasn't stressful per se, but I didn't really like it. And I wanted to like have something more consistent. So I decided to find a full-time job. And that's how I kind of moved into the industry. Okay. And, and, and now you spend the entire time for one company, right? So you're working for a company. Yeah. yeah. And uh, since then? Uh, since then, I'm still doing this. Yeah, so but since I, then, we, you spend your time in one company, or you, you change companies. Oh no, I, I've changed uh, companies, so I'm on my second now. So second I've now, worked okay. into yeah. Okay, and what are you doing right now? If you can talk, um, talk about that. Yeah, I can talk about that. Uh, we're working on. Um, I guess you can say it's kind of like a Monzo clone. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you know there is this e -bank, uh, online. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, eBank exactly. So we're building something like that. Uh, but for more like enterprise oriented for like bigger clients, and um, yeah, we're using like AWS and uh, started with ASP.NET Core, like the latest technologies mm -hmm. uh, of the batch, and so it's pretty cool to just try a bunch of new things at once. Mm -hmm. And um, have you ever had the chance to look at Java? Yeah, actually, one of the projects um, that I had to do for freelancing was in Java. Mm -hmm. Actually, like I said, I, I used C Sharp uh, for freelancing, but Sometimes I had some, like, when I started out, especially, there were some jobs which are, like, help me do my homework assignment, for example, mm -hmm. or something along those lines. And some of those were in different languages, like Python, sometimes in C++, sometimes in Java. And so I built, like, very small programs in them. Um, mm -hmm. So I can't really say I'm, I'm, I know either Java or Python or anything, but I, I wrote something in it. And you liked Java, or was it, like, strange experience, or what was your opinion back then? It was def definitely strange coming from C Sharp. A lot of things were similar, but at the same time, kind of different. I remember like generics surprised me because generics in C Sharp are, are um, I guess, separate types uh, that are built in compile time, while in Java, I think it uses type erasure. Mm -hmm. So it kind of just replaces that with, uh, with just the objects or something. So it, like working with that was kind of surprising. And yeah, I don't remember exactly what else, like what kind of impressions I had, but mm -hmm. I remember it was. Like I, there was some something I was used to, and Java looked very similar to C Sharp, but still functioned differently. Yeah, um, I will have to learn C Sharp. Then you get feedback from me one time. So, um, uh, what <laughs> yeah. uh, the the what I don't like is if, if C Sharp developers uh, do something with Java because they use you know different uh, coding conventions. So we mm. use you know the Camel case, and I think your methods yeah. your methods are always uh, uppercase. And I look yeah. at your code from your blog post, and this is hard hard to read for me because it looks like. It looks like class, but it's actually a method. Mm. And then, yeah. if, if I used to this, it's no problem at all. But at the beginning, it is almost impossible to read C Sharp because uh, it looks familiar, but completely different. So this is actually funny. And I think C Sharp yeah. is one of the few languages we does that, right? With, with the code, yeah, yeah. Code. I actually don't know any other. Yeah. yeah. So. 
And you like and that actually, now, or or is it strange to you as well? Because you know uh, different programming languages as well. So the the, yeah. the coding conventions or naming conventions in C sharp, you like them or not? I have no opinion. Actually, I like that they they exist. So I like that yeah. uh, everybody follows the same thing. But I also like uh, on on a daily basis. I also write uh, TypeScript or JavaScript like all the time. And the convention there are like all camel case essentially. Yeah. Or I mean, the, there are some different conventions, but it's kind of weird actually. But uh, it also is completely fine for me, and okay. even like when I read Java code, like you said, and there is like lowercase methods, it's fine. Like I, I can adjust really quickly, yeah. and it doesn't bother me. I could actually adjust to C# very quickly. What I don't like at all was the Ruby. So I try you know if everyone said you know Ruby is beautiful, and I look at mm -hmm. the codes, like for me it's not beautiful at all. And uh, I think uh, C# would work after a while. But right now it's completely confusing because it looks to me completely different what it actually is. So and what you did in the first company? Because I just would like to um, I just misuse you, you know, to find out the mm -hmm. typical use cases for .NET Core because I hear sometimes .NET Core I had no idea what people were building with .NET Core. Um, so mm -hmm. you building eBay, eBank software like Monzo with C Sharp, yeah. right? C Sharp and .NET Core, or different languages right now? Yeah, it's C Sharp and .NET Core. And just to clarify, we're building the like the backend part of it, okay. and uh, and also like the front-facing um, some front-facing parts, like using TypeScript. Uh, but then there are also other languages involved for for like the mobile app and stuff. Ah, uh, sorry, and are you using Angular in the front end? No, we're using React. Oh. Oh, actually, some some teams use uh, Angular as well, but we're using React on ours. Yeah, very good. So yeah, I, I cannot I, get you know Angular at all. So Angular is the strangest you know yeah. framework. Um, React is absolutely fine. Yeah, and actually a lot of I found that a lot of .NET people kind of like lean towards Angular. So you'll find that like the default choice seems to be like if you're using .NET on the backend, you you would use Angular in the front end. The same in Java. Uh, Enterprise Java yeah. developers would like to have Angular, and because they have dependency injection, but this is modules, yeah. but this is a complete, for me, it's a complete strange choice. Yeah, it seems similar to user, like, oh, it's something I already know. But once you get into it, I guess you realize it's not really that similar, and I personally like React a lot more. Yeah, so. yeah there's less magic involved. And uh, yeah. yeah. And what I do right now is uh, I even replace uh, React with web components and lit HTML. So it looks mm. like React, but it is nothing. It's just, you know, just JavaScript and web standards, but it's a different story. Um, okay, cool. And, and what you did before in the company? Yeah, the, in the previous company, on the previous job, I actually uh, worked on a cloud solution. So it's like a, um, so it's a medical company. It produced medical hardware and also has some software on it as well. And basically, it had a lot of hardware and software. And they needed a solution that um, basically lets people install essentially like the latest version of the software for their hardware mm -hmm. and also taking into account stuff like whether they are licensed, like based on the country, you might not be licensed to the very late, latest version. For example, Korea takes a long time to approve stuff. And then uh, also like some reseller restrictions, country restrictions, and all those kind of like regulatory stuff because it's medical equipment that's very critical. And so we built a cloud solution that kind of just um, provides them, well, it provides all those software clients that they can just use to download updates. But on the back end, it, it's like a solution that you can, first of all, from the administer, administrative, administrative perspective, you can uh, log in and add like new versions and add some components and maybe like language files and stuff. And from the like client perspective, you can use it to download new stuff. And there's like Love storage, uh, databases, and queues, and everything. Also C# -sharp and .NET Core. Yeah, all of it in .NET. Yeah. So now the question in Ukraine or, uh, or or worldwide, if you have the, what is actually the popula popularity of .NET Core? Are there more .NET projects or Java projects? Because for me, it's everything Java. So I do, never mm -hmm. saw you know in my world a .NET Core project. I have to admit. So uh, what's your impression? 
Is everything .NET and nothing Java? <laughs> <What? laughs> um, well, I've never had problems finding .NET jobs, though I think it's popular enough at least. But it's uh, even in Ukraine, if you consider other languages, it loses to JavaScript for sure. Like everybody is mm -hmm. using JavaScript. But then I think it also loses to Java in popularity. Um, but I think it's light, so it's probably almost exactly the same. And also noticed like from, from my environment, but also I think just by seeing what people are talking about online that, you know, a lot more people are starting to get into .NET since it was open source yeah. and became more open in general. So I think it's, uh, it's getting more popular. And, and there was like a Slack overflow survey that they do every year, I think, where they, mm -hmm. they ask you what's your like favorite mm -hmm. framework. And I think the most loved framework this year was ASP.NET Core, actually. So cool. it's kind of fun. ASP.NET Core. Yeah, it's again like the namings, but basically this is the web framework that runs on .NET Core. Yeah, and uh, okay, so let's briefly about ASP.NET Core. It's like you have the view layer, which is uh, like tags, with right? So you have uh, like um, not anymore. It's uh, like the name is very outdated. The name stands for Active Server Pages, exactly. which goes way back, like, like when GSP, it was like no Java Server Pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, uh, but nowadays it's uh, it's kind of like Node.js Express. Um, ah, so okay. it's it's basically like uh, it's a web server. You can compose it from different components. So you can have a web API. So it only just sends JSON back, for example, and has like routing. You can use uh, like controllers, or you can you can use endpoints, or you can use secure as. Um, and you know, like the, there's a lot of stuff. So you can build any web application with it. So it is more or less like in Java, we would have like not application server, more like modern platforms where you can uh, just uh, write in lambdas or. In C sharp is not. You have lambdas in C sharp? No. Yeah, yeah. Lambdas. Yeah, do. With lambdas, like you can quickly build, you know, the the web API saying like get with on whatever, right? So it's just mm -hmm. like leading way yeah, to routing and stuff like that. And the yeah. ASP ASP's classic. The, the the concept is already gone. What I remember, there was like Razor project where they had an MVC, right? No. Yeah, that thing is still. Uh, you can still use it. And and thing is, they actually improved on it. So. Um, well, b back in the day, it was kind of like ASP.NET Web Forms and ASP.NET like MVC with Razor, like yeah. what you're saying. And then there's also ASP.NET Web API. All of that is kind of consolidated into just ASP.NET Core. And you just basically you plug in what you need. So you don't have everything out of the box. You can just do whatever you need for your project. And there's still a way to use uh, Razor for the view. So you can, instead of just returning JSON, you can return uh, like a view that generates HTML based off of the Razor templating engine. Um, so there's, there's one way, but they also work on something called Blazor, which uh, is a technology that allows you to, um, well, it, 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 the original idea is to use WebAssembly mm -hmm. so that uh, oh. everything on the front end is essentially running on .NET. And so you can use uh, still Razor like uh, markup, but then render it on the front end instead of sending it from the server side. So that's also a possibility. Also off-topic question, but you mentioned uh, pluggability. And uh, in Java, yeah. it's actually the same. So the trend is, you now you can compose from pieces, whatever you like. And uh, we have also the possibility, you know, to have the complete environment. And then you can just, it's called uh, the, the, the MicroProfile API or Jakarta API. Mm -hmm. And you, you get everything and you just use whatever is there. So for me, uh, I like, you know, the complete part because it's very easy to start with. The problem is you have a lots of small projects. And uh, if I have the, you know, pluggability uh, decision made, then what I have to do is I have each time I have, you know, to, to add, you know, I need whatever. I need, you mm -hmm. know, JSON serialization. I need REST. So I have to think about, I need metrics. So I have to add over and over again, again, the same stuff, which is really boring. So what's your opinion? Do you like the 
modularity as developer, or would you prefer you know to get from .NET everything at once? Um, I like it when I I basically only have exactly what I need. Like I really like this aspect of control when you just well you have a, a problem and you want to solve it and you just use exactly the right tools for it and nothing more, nothing less. So in that sense, I think plugability makes me well makes it possible to achieve that, uh, and so that I like. But also something from what you described resonates with, with me. So sometimes it happens that oh, what exactly do I need to exactly. use to get it to work and stuff? But uh, I mean, eventually it kind of just disappears after a while because you already learned. And you know, in in my experience, you you seem to be doing more or less the same things. Like if you're doing web web API, it's very unlikely that you'll you know, be switching from web API to some like view-based uh, web yeah. application very often. So you just remember what exactly you need. And of course, there's also like templates. So you can start with a template which already has like for a specific use case, everything you exactly. need. Exactly. Uh, what I do in Java is exactly this. So I just end, end up having you know, my own templates. And, uh, mm-hmm. and this is basically copy and paste. So of the new projects, yeah. I just add all the dependencies, which is actually pointless because before then there was no template. It came with the framework, you know. <laughs> this is funny yeah, observation. Yeah. So um, why we are talking is someone pointed to you, I think. I even know, don't, don't know what happened. This, and you wrote an excellent article about unit tests. Yeah. So I, I can explain you the situation in my world. So what we have, uh, we have a tool called Sonar. You know Sonar? Uh, yeah, that's for code analysis. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And I'm also spend my time in larger projects, but uh, I'm not working. I'm freelance. I'm still freelancer, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm working for 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 many projects. And uh, my clients, you know, they, they they are larger projects, and the managers always want want to have you know some some numbers or statistics, just right. you know say okay, this is uh, good enough. And what happens is they install Sonar, and they say we need eighty percent code coverage for no reasons. Eighty mm-hmm. percent is like seems to be the number. I, I guess there was an article or book which says you know eighty percent. And the developers say okay, you will get it. And um, then they've write you know absolute pointless unit tests and uh, for everything, right. and uh, to achieve the eighty percent. And uh, in Java, I, I would just um, can just give you no know, Java examples. So mm-hmm. they, they do stuff like they invoke default constructors. Uh, just to increase, you know, the code coverage. They mm-hmm. invoke to string. I don't know whether you have to string in .NET. It's just an open yeah, yeah, method, yeah. right? Then enums. So there's enumerations. So they go through the enumeration to increase, you know, the code cover. And, and in Java, it just cannot break. What I know is in C sharp, you have not getters and setters. You have more uh, like in JavaScript, you have uh, accessors, right? What you can do in C sharp, yeah. you can in, uh, you can invoke their properties. Properties exactly. Yeah. So you can yeah. invoke a a a. a how to call it, a field, and you can intercept mm-hmm. that with getters and setters afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah. In Java, we don't have it yet, and uh, what uh, sometimes this is optional, but what developers tend to do is to generate getters and setters upfront for everything, and just b- because IDE does that, right? Now, and then you have the problem, of course, lots of methods which are uncovered. So they invoke yeah. in unit tests getters and setters, but they cannot break because they just set and get the values. This is like, you know, millions of lines of codes of pointless code, and then the, the mm-hmm. worst of all, you get the eighty percent code coverage, and actually you didn't test anything. So at the end, you know uh, everything was invoked, but nothing was tested. Right. So um, and even worse. So I give you another example. So we have uh, probably similar to the ASP.NET. So in Java we use called JAX-RS. So mm-hmm. uh, you have a class with uh, annotations, and usually the architectural point of view is this class is just used as a thin wrapper around the business logic. So what it just does is it creates, let's say, HTTP response, the response codes. It, it does a you know, so simplistic yeah. type conversions, conversions, 
And uh, I actually never test this class because it has no business logic. So there's, but right. then of course, you know, the, it lowers the code coverage. So what a developer do is, and this is what you described, described in your article. It's just identical in my world. They know, mm -hmm. say, um, if uh, someone invokes response once, then it is okay if twice is no more okay. But what they are doing, they are writing in unit tests, you know, exactly this what happened in the implementation. Yeah. And, and then it, it increases, you know, the maintenance Coupling. because, yeah, because uh, every change in business logic, you have to know to, to change the unit tests. And uh, it is absolutely pointless. So what I tell, you know, the managers is if you build a, let's say, a, uh, a, a computer and you will just, you know, click on every button of the, of the keyboard, this is the unit test, it will never turn it on. And then the end, it will say, "Okay, now it should work, right?" And um, mm -hmm. so, and and uh, what what's what's interesting? You you are the first, you know, which publicly said, or what I saw uh, exactly the same what I was saying for a long time from Java, and you did the same experience in C sharp, and even the test pyramid, you know, from my perspective, is completely pointless for backend projects because if something fails in Java, it fails because you know concurrency or you know mm -hmm. the 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 modules are not working well together, and um, Usually, we are just talking to database. There is not like huge amount right. of business logic involved. You know, we are just better database browsers. And uh, so what we are testing is pointless code. And what remains is the code which can break and it is never tested. So, um, exactly. so um, what's, what's interesting is the c -sharp projects tend to have you know, exactly the same experience. So explain you from your perspective what you see in projects. So because you wrote the article, I think you, mm -hmm. you made similar experiences, right? Yeah. Um, actually, it's funny because I don't see that, you know, 80% coverage requirement all that often. Okay. Uh, but, but developers, like every team I worked on, developers always knew they had to write tests. And the problem was with that was that they knew they, for some reason, they thought they had to run unit tests specifically. And like my biggest issue and why I wrote the article was because oftentimes when people think about tests, they immediately think about unit testing. And that often just isn't the right, you know, approach. Um, and I, inside the article, I also explain why it ended up being like, the, like this, like why did we decide that development testing should be done through unit testing, and also because of the pyramid. Uh, but like you said, it's, it's not universal because if you're going to focus on unit tests, it's only going to depend, like their, their effectiveness is going to depend on how much business logic you have. And if you're developing some you know, crazy uh, banking mainframe, there's probably going to be a lot of it, and you probably might get a lot of effort from it, or sorry, uh, return on investment from it. But then if you do something like a crowd application, which is like the extreme opposite, right? Then there's going to be no business logic whatsoever. There's going to be a lot of integrations with different components and stuff. And you gain absolutely nothing from unit testing. But the pyramid kind of insists that there's always this structure that you have to follow. Uh, with like the separation and no matter what project essentially. And, the, and so people kind of just apply it everywhere and they see that, well, we have to do a lot of unit testing because it's the, the bottom of the pyramid, the biggest part of it. And so they start with unit testing, they unit test everything, but they don't really stop to think whether they, that kind of testing actually provides them with any confidence or value in the long run. Yeah. In uh, Java, there is uh, another uh, story behind that is what you get, you get the statistics for free for unit tests. So if you write unit tests, the code coverage comes for free. But integration mm. tests or system tests are harder to get the code coverage from because you will have to install you know, specific agents in the runtime, which will gather, gather the statistics and, and push them to the, to the sonar. So and um, mm. this, is, this is the main reason that in Java it is a lot harder to get the code coverage from, for system or, or not a lot harder. It's different. It, it doesn't come out of the box. Uh, a lot harder means it is uh, 
one line of code. You you have to know, right. and then you have to copy a file. This is this is harder, right? But uh, still, something to do. And uh, therefore, they they go with the default, and in the default mm-hmm. case, they only see you know unit test code coverage. And be, before they are driven by the metrics, uh, then the you know the unit test code coverage is paramount because if you are external developer, and you 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 are you no know, judged by the client by the quality of the uh, or, or the the or by the statistics, then you will write more code uh, unit tests because otherwise you won't pass you know the the quality gates. So, uh, so they completely ignore integration and system tests because this integration and system tests tests don't generate any stats. Yeah. And what I do and in it, uh, projects, we prescribe uh, cyclomatic complexity, and uh, cyclomatic complexity means like you know uh, three is the, um, for instance if else else. So we have cyclomatic mm-hmm. complexity of three. If I have the power, I say okay, you are not allowed to unit test code if the cyclomatic complexity is lower than three, because mm-hmm. then. Uh, they cannot cannot just write unit uh, test code for a uh, unit test for uh, getters and setters, right? Which is pointless or default constructors yeah. or enums. So at least that. And um, and that's uh, smart, actually. Yeah, the, uh, 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 this is a fight, you know. You can you cannot imagine because uh, I'm a freelancer and they are from different companies. They are managers and you know they have already all the templates in place and whatever. And I come in and say mm-hmm. what you are doing is pointless. And this is of course every time you know yeah. one day meeting. But um, yeah, this cyclomatic complexity. And uh, are you aware of uh, mutation testing? Yeah, but I haven't actually actively been using it. Yeah, uh, I can just tell you how it works in Java because it also solves the problem. Because what yep. mutation pytest, for instance, is one framework. I don't know whether it's available for C sharp, but in Java. And in the mutation testing, what it does is it uh, modifies the business code, and this modification is expected to be caught by the asserts. So what means is, uh, so the mutants has to be caught. So this, this is the idea, right? So verified. And uh, yeah. what uh, what happens in my project is uh, there are two kinds of, of unit tests. So pointless unit tests. One mm-hmm. pointless unit test is they invoke a lot and assert nothing. So you have you know, a huge invocation chain and in the end you see assert no null or assert true. Yeah. Yeah. And then you know the mutation will fail. And the other thing is they don't test the actual business logic they test what happened inside the method. You know, every call in the method is verified with unit test. So then the mutation testing will probably, will still green or won't fail, but it's still pointless. But the problem with the mutation testing is because the bytecode is modified several times. So there was like, you know, your, your production bytecode is modified and in the hope uh, the, the unit test will, will, will catch the, uh, the modification, it is a little bit yeah. slower. But there's also an, an interesting, you know, uh, hack to 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 do in projects. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. And uh, like I, I I had a thought about like code coverage because I use this as a metric in my own projects and like the projects I work on. But the things the thing I found is that as a metric, it's only the most useful when it says zero percent because then you know there is absolutely no testing done, mm-hmm. and that actually conveys some information. But whenever it's anything but that, like one or ten or even hundred percent, you have no idea like what. Is the extent of testing like mm-hmm. it only tells you that everything has been exercised but like you said it might not assert anything so you can do like add two numbers but then don't yeah. check the result you'll yeah. still get 100 percent coverage and it only really makes sense like if you see 80 percent, it's only going to give you some reassurance or like assurance at all if you know what is the quality of the tests that provided that coverage mm-hmm. like have if you've written them you know that okay then it's probably good 80 percent coverage mm-hmm. if you just come into a new project and you see eighty percent. You have no idea whether it's actually valuable eighty percent or not. Yeah, and uh, the uh, in Java we have also confusion. You know the naming 
test naming is like terrible. So what I did is I always, you know, take the names from Wikipedia because they are the easiest accessible. And it's like mm -hmm. unit test is the smallest unit. I would just do it for uh, methods with significant amount of business logic, cyclomatic co code yeah. complexity. Yeah. And uh, it's no more available, but a few versions back of Sonar Source, what we had is, is a, a decent metric. It was, it combined the cyclomatic, test co uh, cyclomatic complexity with test coverage. So what we did, mm. I think it was called Project Word Count. The larger the font of the, of the class, the complex it is, and the color mm. was test coverage. So okay. what we did, there was like a you know, huge dash, and I said, okay, whatever you do, large red font is forbidden, and small mm -hmm. green font is suspicious. Oh, okay. And this was yeah. great. So something like this would, would actually work, right? And, um, and uh, the integration tests in Java are uh, a little bit more than unit tests. So you will test you know, three, four classes, like what we usually do is mm -hmm. we start uh, a Java class with access to database without starting the runtime. So we can start the server, or we can just start the database. So I have the oppo opportunity to test, for instance, SQL statements without ASP.NET or in my world without mm -hmm. JaxRS. So this is useful. And the most useful test is system test, black box. Yeah. And what I do in my project, a hack, so I'm curious about your opinion, is I'm starting the uh, runtime with code coverage agent turn on. Then I run mm -hmm. my system test from outside. And then expect the code coverage being relatively high because now I'm you now calling all the public APIs. And the cool story yeah. is I misuse code coverage to identify that code. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm misusing, you know, because if something is not called, the question is why? Is it, you know, my test is not as good yeah. or is forgotten code? In my case, it's almost forgotten, always forgotten code. So I just misuse code coverage to, to, to identify and delete forgotten code. I actually do the same. I, I usually look at like the, I use CodeCov to like submit my code coverage to, and then it shows uh, like a heat map, and you okay. can browse like the files that haven't been covered that well. And I also do this like a write black box test first, mm -hmm. and whenever I can, I start from those, and um, and then I look at the coverage and see which classes have not been tested and try to figure out why as well. And usually it's also because uh, it might be because I forgot some feature and yeah. then I add it, but also might be because it just isn't used. Um, or it's used, but not actually like in a real scenario or mm -hmm. something like this. Hey, cool. Uh, which tool are you using for that? Is it? So the, there is this website called codecov.io, mm -hmm. and it, it basically lets you submit different code coverage reports in mm -hmm. like JSON, Coverture, and stuff. And then it parses them and visualizes them in a nice hey, interface. Cool. But in, in .NET v, uh, to collect coverage, we have a tool called Coverlet, which is just uh, a library there's kind of like in .NET, there is like private dependencies. Mm -hmm. so you can have a library that doesn't get exported, like if you package it or something. And so you, you can use this coverlet um, uh, runtime library to um, basically instrument your code during development so mm -hmm. that it reports when it was called. And then it, based off of that, it uh, collects coverage statistics. So mm -hmm. you can use it for integration testing, for end-to-end -end testing, for anything. And you don't even have to write any lines, just add a package, that's it. So, so it just hooks into your runtime, probably. It has to modify yeah. the, the Do you have bytecode.net, how it's called? Uh, it's called Dial, intermediate language. Yeah. And it's kind of like bytecode. The way it works is essentially like if it's built uh, during testing, and then it just, um, like after compilation, it changes the assembly so that it injects like additional code. And so when uh, the test executes any code that eventually gets mm -hmm. uh, calls that assembly, all of that extra code that it injected will report like what are the methods that were called or how they were called and stuff like this.
But then when you run it in real environment, all of that instrumentation code is not added. In Java, we have Jacoco is an agent, and the agent just hooks into the tests, so it knows what's invoked and what's not, uh, what's not invoked, and it produces one file called jacoco.exec. And if you have that mm -hmm. file, you can submit it to a IntelliJ, for instance, on tool whatever you have, and you get you know the nice color colored syntax what was invoked and what what yeah. wasn't exactly. And uh, what I also uh, a huge fan of are uh, stress tests. So uh, stress tests means you know mm -hmm. torture tests. So what I try to do is to generate a high load and see how my runtime behaves. You know to see do we have enough threads, enough memory, do we have some deadlocks? Because uh, as a freelancer, I spend a lot of time in uh, firefighting projects. Something didn't work, and usually it was memory leaks yeah. was always you know concurrency. This is ignored in most projects completely. Like, you know, they uh, most of the enterprise Java projects, they do as if, as if they were single-threaded. So no mm -hmm. no stress test at all. And um, so I, I do it actually a lot. So from my perspective, you know, the black box and stress tests uh, are the most valuable tests at the end. And the unit yeah. and integration test, from my opinion, is more or less, I'm too lazy to start the runtime. So I've, I've write, you know, different tests to uh, to 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 write faster code of uh, mm -hmm. to write code faster or more productive without starting the runtime. So, what's your take on the stress test? Do something as well in C sharp or? Yeah, uh, we usually call it load testing. Um, mm -hmm. So there are tools for that, and if you, I mean, you can use anything like even from something that's not built in C sharp because mm -hmm. you're yeah. essentially just sending requests. Usually, yeah. so it doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, and most of, like on the, on the current project that I'm working on, we actually do that as well to make sure that. You know, whatever we wrote actually with with tens load yeah. of maybe hundred users per per second or something at least, um, and I think it's very valuable. I think like it's one of those uh, things that people often forget about that you can have everything tested, like all of your separate components may work correctly, but then if the user can't extract any value from that, it doesn't matter. Like for example, you may have like ninety nine percent code coverage on all of your like classes in your mm -hmm. code, but then something was configured incorrectly in routing. And so when the user goes to a URL, they end up on a 404 page. Then it doesn't really matter. Like it's the same with high, uh, with like load. If if your site is down, then you know it doesn't matter if you have 100% task coverage. Yeah, it's exactly. not going to help anyway. Mm -hmm. And of course, so we have lots of microservice patterns, and, you know, circuit breakers, timeouts, and whatever. And you have also tests whether they're actually working, and you know, generate yeah, yeah, the. Yeah the expected uh, metrics and, and stats. So it was a really nice conversation the first time, you know, with uh, someone from the .NET world. And um, uh, where people can find you? So uh, do you have some, you know, your, your blog? Your, the, what is the name of yeah. the article? Actually, I wrote it down. It was like, and uh, yeah. Yeah, it's titled Unit Testing is Overrated. Yeah. And I actually thought a lot about the name and I decided to go with this. I know it sounds a little bit clickbaity, but I think it's really what I'm trying to tell everyone that, you know, they're overrated. They're not like bad or anything, but people place too much faith in them. And so like my blog, uh, you know, there's this article and then you can also read some others um, if you want. And also I'm on Twitter. It's mm -hmm. Twitter slash, I mean, T-Y-R-R-R-Z. Yeah. Um, so hopefully you'll, Why you'll have a link. For... What's oh, the story? It's, a long story. it's actually from my childhood. Um, so like I had to find a nickname for a, for an online game at some point, and I ended up with Tyre, like the Norwegian or like the Nordic mythology god. But it worked for that game. But for any other account, I tried to register. Uh, it was too few characters, or it was already taken. So I had to uh, become creative, and with the creativity I have, I just added R's to the end. Okay. And then at some point, that wasn't enough, so I added the Z. And finally, with that combination, nobody had the same nickname anymore. Uh, cool story, actually. Cool. Yeah. And um. 
if, if if you like, just send me the links to the tools you are using in .NET. So I will. Yeah. And, and if you like, also name of your company if you like. So and uh, um, in some point of future, I can reinvite you back to talk. You know about the progress in this or React and front end, whatever. Like it was fun to mm -hmm. have a conversation with a non-Java developer because you know in my ecosystem it's just Java. <laughs> I never had the opportunity yeah. to talk, to have a talk with C# -sharp people. So thank you a lot. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was a very nice experience for me.